Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by business columnist and editor Greg Jefferson, columnist and editorial writer Kerry Clack. This is our special uh, 2021 year in review podcast. It's the last podcast we're going to do for this year. We're going to take a look at some of the big things that happened uh, both locally uh, in Texas and, and nationwide. And um, this is how the year began. And breaking news tonight, the deadly siege on Congress as an angry pro-Trump mob storms the U.S. Capitol. We've seen shocking images of chaos, rioters rushing past barricades and police up the Capitol steps, forcing their way inside both the House and the Senate evacuated. Lawmakers moved to safe locations. The invaders roaming the abandoned Senate floor, one hanging from the balcony, police with guns drawn inside the House. That happened uh, on January 6th and was a reflection of President Donald Trump uh, refusing to accept his defeat in the 2020 election. He uh, encouraged his supporters to go to Washington, D.C. that day, and we, we ended up seeing a, an insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. That, that incident had really colored a lot of the politics that we saw in 2021. We saw state legislatures, including uh, the one in Texas, responding to to that incident and to Trump's claims about the election by imposing restrictive election laws, uh, it's it's just really uh, sort of cast a shadow over over everything we've seen, and we're going to talk about it more as we go along. I wanted to start with the the year in COVID, and and look at where we've 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 come um, since since January. Uh, at the beginning of the year, case numbers were exploding. I think in in uh, early January, we were uh, averaging about two hundred fifty thousand. Uh, U.S. cases a day, and the, the numbers were really kind of reaching a peak. At the same time, there was a lot of promise because COVID vaccine uh, we had just been rolled out, and we were starting to see people get vaccinated. Um, by the middle of the year, late June, there was a lot of optimism that we had completely turned a corner. I think cases were at about eleven thousand a day. There was really a feeling that among a, a lot of us that uh, if you were vaccinated, you could life could go back to normal. And now we're at a point where, the, you know, that that is, has been proven not to be the case with the emergence of the Delta variant, more recently, the, the Omicron variant. Uh, so, Carrie, I w- want to get a sense from you. It's, it's just been, you know, we just it's been this kind of up and down sort of uh, whiplash sort of effect that we've seen, I think, in 2021 when it comes to COVID-19, some uh, feelings of, of, of optimism and, you know, quick, quickly followed by just, you know, the, people being really demoralized and, and kind of wondering where, where we're going to go from here. I mean, what do you, when you look at this year and what, how do you feel about that situation? And the, the word whiplash is, is right because you think about this time a year ago and the, the, the excitement, the giddiness we all felt because the vaccine was here, right. even though for most of us, we weren't going to, it would be, a, you know, weeks and months before we could get vaccinated, we were thrilled. And, you know, we, we turned that corner and, and everyone was getting vaccinated. Then, then, then you know, Delta came along and but we were still doing well. Um, I, I, don't, I don't fault Biden for too much when it comes to COVID because mm-hmm. Lord knows we're much better than, than uh, we would be if, if he hadn't been elected. But, you know, he did have this whole... July 4th independence from COVID thing, which is, you know, kind of similar, if not quite like President Bush's mission accomplished. Right. Um, 
And you look at where we're at now in December of 2021, it's, it's, I mean, you look at what's happening with the sports leagues and it's almost like what was happening in March of 2020. Mm-hmm. But yet, again, because we do have the vaccinations, um, it's not as bad. But still, but, but because of what we've been through, and it's hard to believe, y'all, that it's been almost two years. Yeah. Because of what we've been through, we're not sure really what to expect. What's the next variant? As long as we have this this percentage of the people who refuse to get vaccinated and refuse to to indulge in the common good of taking getting themselves together, it's going to be more uncertain. Yeah, I, w- I was just thinking about this, and I not to wanting to overstate the the, the sports implications of this, but just. I was thinking about how this is this is the third NBA season that has now been affected by COVID, and that's really c- kind of mind-boggling to me. But but it just kind of puts things in perspective, you know. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about on the podcast over the course of this year about you know what what life is going to be like long term. Are we going to is is COVID just something we're going to have to live with? Or are we just going to um, are people just going to kind of pretend that uh, we're living in the same world we were uh, pre-COVID? Or are we just going to spend um, the next, you know, the foreseeable future living in this, in this sort of uh, pandemic world? I mean, Greg, Greg, how do you see it? Yeah. I mean, I think of kind of my own personal experience over the last few weeks, you know, I, you know, my, my wife and I traveled to uh, Seattle to be with our middle daughter for Thanksgiving. And we traveled to Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, as we were on the plane both times, uh, you know, to and from, you know, we did, everybody was masked up. Um, nobody complained. You know, we, we were lucky enough to be on a flight where you didn't have, uh, um, you know, a mask radical, anti-mask radical arguing about having to wear them. <laughs> yeah. Everybody just kind of wore them. And I looked around on, on my return flight from, from Vegas and it, it kind of dawned on me. This is, I think this is the way, you know, this is the way it's going to be for the foreseeable future. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, in, in some ways um, we're accustomed to it now. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it would be weird and kind of scary to get on a plane without you know, every passenger being masked up. That said, um, you know, it's like I, you look around and there seems to be, you know, you know, you've got businesses like airlines that are very good at, uh, you know, maintaining mask policies. Um, Yeah. You look around at those, you know, those around you and there's, there's a lot of lack of, a lot of laxness, I think. Uh, we're yeah. seeing exhaustion, and we've seen this for months. Uh, people, you know, not not maintaining uh, safe distance between one another, not wearing masks, and I think it's uh, you know a lot of people are just tired, and mm-hmm. I think they you know for for a long time now they've wanted things to get back to normal. They're not getting back to normal, but I think a lot of people are acting as though it is. Uh, so I think we're in, uh, you know, we're in for a really significant wave with Omicron. I think, yeah. uh, you know, I think, you know, we've got a lot of cases ahead of us, whether they're going to be as severe as we saw with the Delta wave. I don't know. I mean, early indications are maybe not uh, that it's it's not it's it's more you know, transmittable, but it's not as as severe yeah. uh, as, as far as symptomology. Um, yeah. 
But I mean, we've got a lot ahead of us still. You know, it's it's hard to remember that at the beginning of this year, we had a statewide mask mandate, uh, and and that which had been imposed by right. a Republican yeah. Governor Greg Abbott, and we had it for about eight months, um, which he he ended in March. It was a, a controversial move to end that. Um, I I think that one of the things that 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 uh, the Governor Abbott has done, and certainly you've you've sensed all through this pandemic that he's he's felt. It's like he, you know, the, he, he's been hearing footsteps. He's been he's been sensing that um, there are people to the to his right who are uh, unhappy with any restrictions uh, that are imposed for the for to deal with the pandemic, and so he's constantly responding to that. And uh, I think one uh, one move that he made that I, I think has really been detrimental to the state was. Uh, not allowing uh, businesses to have, uh, you know, vaccine mandates. I think that this is something that they they ought to ha- be able to make determinations for themselves and on this kind of thing. And he's mm-hmm. he's not only not only eliminated certain uh, you know mandates that the state had, but also has has been really uh, has really hasn't allowed individual businesses to make determinations for themselves. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, I think one of the uh, most difficult uh, experiences that the state has had in, in, in recent years, which was the the February freeze, which caused massive power outages. Um, the the statewide power grid almost collapsed, and uh, I think the most recent counts have been that more than two hundred uh, Texans uh, ended up dying as a result of the, of the February freeze. It's raised a lot of questions about um, the the energy market in Texas, the, uh, the stability of the power grid. Um, and it's also kind of raised a lot of questions about CPS energy and, and certainly put them in financial distress and, and, and caused everyone to see them in a new light. Uh, Greg, what are you, you know, what are your big takeaways? You've written about CPS energy and everything that they've gone through this year. I mean, what stands out to you about, about CPS energy right now? Yeah. I mean, CPS energy before, uh, before last February was, in relatively strong shape. And, you know, odds are they would have proceeded with uh, a rate increase, requesting one from uh, city council this year. Um, And they probably would have gotten it passed. It had been seven years since their last rate increase. And everybody, this was before the storm, everybody had kind of agreed, yeah, I think it's time for another rate increase. San Antonio's population is growing. It costs money to connect these newcomers to the grid. Uh, you have to upgrade. You know, you have to keep your IT systems upgraded. I mean, CPS Energy's uh, tech platform is pretty old. Uh, it's it's really legacy so- software. So, I mean, the argument was a pretty good one for a rate increase. And then the storm hit, um, and that just caused all kinds of chaos. Uh, I mean, you had ERCOT make, you know, mandating kind of rolling outages. And as we've said before, these outages really didn't roll anywhere. They just kind of sat right where they were squishing a lot of people uh, Mm -hmm. in their houses without electricity, freezing temperatures. And, you know, CPS, you know, they took splatter from that. I mean, you know, that, that hurt CPS. Um, in addition to the fact that uh, you know several CPS plants weren't adequately weatherized, they weren't prepared for long you know long periods of freezing temperatures, and so there were glitches. And, and part of part of the outages we had 
that week. I mean, yes, mostly it was about the ERCOT mandates, but it was also about CPS really, you know, having having a couple of power plants down at any given time because of the weather. Uh, that forced them to go onto the state uh, spot market to buy wholesale electricity and gas at phenomenal prices. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, mean, the, yeah. you know, San, uh, CPS Energy wound up spending uh, or, you know, basically with bills totaling more than a billion dollars, part of which, you know, about half of about half of that they're contesting in court court now. They're accusing about mm. 17 gas suppliers of price gouging. A, a lawsuit, uh, all of this lawsuits that, that, is, that, that I think we've, we've agreed they probably have no chance of winning. Is it is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, very like, uh, yeah, I mean, I think the best CPS can hope for from those lawsuits is for the gas companies to say, okay, look, we'll cut you a break. You're not going to get off scot-free, but, you know, we'll, you know, we'll discount a little bit. And those talks, for all we know, could be going on right now. Um, But, you know, CPS is already of that billion dollar bill. They've already paid over $400 million. And that's, that's a cost that's going directly to ratepayers. Uh, you know, we're, that's what we're already on the hook for. Whatever remains of that billion dollar bill, we're going to be paying for that too. So it's just, it became this, um, this political uh, disaster for CPS. They had to, you know, the, the storm really intensified the need for a rate increase. And it was going to be significantly higher now than it would have been had it not been for the storm. Um, And, you know, it caused basically, I I think that more than anything else led to the downfall of Paula Gold Williams as the utilities uh, president and CEO. Like that, that was the driving force. There was just a lot of palpable anger among CPS customers at, at the utility um, not, I mean, you know, maybe maybe they were upset at at ERCOT as well, but CPS is is their provider. It is the company right in front of them, mm-hmm. and they focus their ire on on her primarily. Uh, and I I think that's you know that's what led to her undoing. I mean, in October she announced that she's stepping down uh, in early January. But since that time, uh, you've seen almost nothing of Paula Gold Williams in mm-hmm. public. Uh, yeah. It's, you know, they, they named an interim CEO, Rudy Garza. And he's, he's, he has been the public face of CPS because she's, you know, she's so politically damaged. She's, she's toxic in a sense. So they've kind of kept her squirreled away. And that's kind of where we are at the end of the year with yeah. CPS. Yeah. And with the big question of, are they going to be able to get the, uh, the 3.85% rate increase that they want? And I think it's, it's, right. an, open, it's an open it's, question. It is an open question. And the, you know, you can, you can kind of tell how intense this political storm has been by looking at what we were talking about just, just a couple of months ago. Uh, you know, they were talking about a rate increase of, of about 10%, that's maybe right. a little higher than that. And that was just, that was, you know, it became clear to them, you know, when they started talking with city council members, that was never going to fly. There was just too much anger among the electorate, among uh, council members, constituents to, to let that happen. So it's gotten down to about three point, you know, eight, five percent. And that's probably what's going to go to a vote and whether it passes or not, we don't know, you know, council council will be voting on this. I believe it's uh, January 13th. 
Yeah. Uh, and nobody knows at this point, uh, you know, what, what to expect in the way of a vote. Yeah. Carrie, we've, we've, we're used to seeing, uh, Texas legislative sessions be, uh, uh have, uh, used to seeing rancor and, and conflict when it comes to the, uh, our legislative sessions, but it seems like this year's was kind of on a, on a, a level that we're not used to. And um, it, it seemed to me that some combination of bitterness among uh, Texas Republicans over uh, the presidential election, the fact that Donald Trump lost, mixed with um, with bravado coming from a 2020 election in which Texas Republicans overall did better than expected. There was some thought that Democrats might even take the Texas House, that they were, in the end they didn't gain any seats at all. So some it felt to me like a combination of bitterness and bravado uh, sort of fueled this kind of culture war agenda from Texas Republicans. We saw them, uh, you know, pushing forward, uh, you know, legislation that was uh, preventing transgender kids from from competing in school sports, um, all but banning abortion in, in Texas, restricting voter access, which, again, kind of goes back to this, the, the January 6th um, uh, insurrection at the mm-hmm. Capitol, um, attempting to shut down the teaching of anything that they perceive to be critical race theory, or really that has any kind of critique of the uh, racial history in the United States. Uh, what stands out to you about what we saw with this uh, 2021 legislative session? Man, I mean, I think just just the way you tied it all up, Gilbert. It's it's everything. But if I had to, if I had to just pick one because I think it ties in what I think is the greatest threat that we all face. It will mm-hmm. be the uh, the voter suppression yeah. because, again, it goes back to January 6th. And, I mean, everything that happened, it seems like every most things that happened in the legislation, most things were happening across the country in other legislatures goes back to January 6th. Um, and it's and then if everything else flows out of there, you know, from, you know, you go, go get the voter suppression, then you go to, to abortion, then you go to quote unquote critical race theory. Uh, it, it was a very demoralizing it was. legislative session, more so because there's no reason to believe that this is not how it's going to be for legislative sessions to come. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they were able, ultimately able to achieve, uh, you know, their goals. I mean, we had Texas House Democrats going to Washington, D.C. Um, this summer, this and um, to try to block um, the passage of the the voting restriction uh, legislation, and you know they were able to delay the passage, but ultimately not stop it. Um, I've I've talked a lot this year about about that um, that law, but the thing that 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 has that really stood out to me because I mean this this legislation, for example, it, I mean, it, this was in the climate of the pandemic and the fact that you had various states trying to increase access, trying to create an opportunity for people to vote where social distancing would be possible. Even Republican Governor Greg Abbott added a week to early voting in 2020 to try to, uh, to alleviate that problem. But, um, because we saw such huge democratic turnout throughout the country, Republicans responded by trying to, to, uh, you know, prevent some of these things from happening, including 24-hour voting, drive-through voting, and so on. But the thing that that I've talked about a lot and that really stands out to me, because it's not the kind of thing that can be justified 
on any level as um, a, an attempt to protect the integrity of the vote. It's 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 purely a voter suppression move, which is preventing counties from sending out unsolicited mail ballot applications. And so this is a county saying if you're 65 or over or you have you know some kind of health reason or there there is you you qualify to under state law to vote by mail we're just going to send you an application they're not sending out ballots which is i think something that's often misrepresented by by certain republican officials they're not sending out ballots to people they're sending out an application here you can fill out this application and then send it into us and we'll decide if it if it, we approve it or not, and then send you a ballot. Um, it's really hard to understand why anyone would have a problem with that. But the obvious answer is that if you send out applications to everyone who qualifies, a lot of them are going to vote by mail and your turnout's going to go up. And the calculation among, among Republican lawmakers is that the majority of those voters are going to be Democrats. One of the striking things about this, about about this era that we're living in and with this, with the, I don't want to say the Republican Party in general, but the Republicans who are, who are in power in this state and others is the total disregard, the total lack of interest in appealing to anyone else. They That's just right. want to retrench and, mm-hmm. and protect the diminishing numbers that they have mm-hmm. and aren't concerned about about reaching out to other people, aren't even concerned about reaching out to to more moderate Republicans. Sure. Yeah, they're basically appealing to an electorate that's made up mostly of people from rural communities and and the suburbs. <laughs> I mean, they've they you know every everything or a lot of what they did in the last legislative session uh, was detrimental to Texas's large cities. Which is, I mean, look, you know. Governor Abbott is always bragging about uh, the influx of Californians into Texas, them, them moving here. I mean, they're not moving, you know, they're not moving to to isolated communities in West Texas. They're moving to the big cities. And a lot of uh, the Republicans' legislative agenda, agenda this year has targeted, like, you know, like the, the voting restrictions, they target yeah, sure. large cities. <laughs> I mean, so on the one hand, you know, they're he's bragging about something he's he's actively attacking, which is cities, large, you know, large cities in Texas. I mean, to me, the, you know, Abbott and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick are engaged in kind of this big experiment. Like how mm-hmm. how fundamentalist can you make That's right. uh, Texas state government and still have a successful economy? I mean, you still, you know, you with take the Tesla announcement, you know, just a, a couple of months ago, uh, they're moving their headquarters here from Palo Alto, California. That's a huge win, uh, particularly for Austin. Uh, you know, is it possible for us to look ahead two or three years if if nothing changes in our politics and it, it becomes only reflective of this really small sliver of the electorate? You know, basically older, whiter voters who don't live in cities. Like if if that's going to be our politics, if that what if that's what informs our politics going forward, like how how long is it going to be before corporations mm-hmm. begin reconsidering yep. a move to Texas and thinking, you know, maybe maybe we move elsewhere? I mean, maybe that doesn't happen, yeah. but I think it's a possibility. No, I think it's a great point. Um, 
Well, it, it seems like a million years ago, but we did have a municipal election in San Antonio in 2021. And um, yeah, it, it doesn't, I, 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 yeah, I had to remind myself of that before we started the podcast. But, um, and maybe the reason we don't remember it so well is because uh, at least when it came to the mayoral election, it had uh, none of the drama that we saw in 2019. When Ron, incumbent Ron Nuremberg was challenged by then council member mm-hmm. Greg Brockhouse, and it was it went to a runoff, and it was really intense and pretty ugly election campaign. We had a rematch in 2021. I think this is kind of like um, Joe Lewis and Billy Kahn. Maybe this is you know because boxing historians might know this because <laughs> Billy Kahn was a great light heavyweight who had Joe Lewis beat, but then he got a little he got a little too. Uh, too uh-huh. bold and he got knocked out and then they, they couldn't have a rematch till after the war and Billy Kahn had put on some weight and he got he got he got decimated you know in, in the in the rematch so that was kind of Brockhouse yeah. he's the Billy Kahn in this story um he lost by two to one in the re- <laughs> sorry about that but uh he lost by two to one and it really it really had none of the drama um so but one of the things that did happen in this election and I, I it, Carrie I was going to get your thoughts on this well, the there was the uh, the mayoral election was kind of a you know not really very eventful. We d- we did see four new council members elected, and at least two of them, uh, Jalen McKee Rodriguez on the east side, uh, Terry Castillo on the west side, are true young movement cons- uh, progressives, and I think they've really kind of changed the conversation on city council. This happened also at the same time that we had a proposition uh, to take away. Uh, collective bargaining power from the San Antonio Police Union, and it got forty nine percent of the vote and nearly passed. So, wh- what do you what do you make of what's going on in municipal politics, Carrie? I, I think it's I think it's still a little bit early because I'm I'm still trying to understand right. the um, the dynamics and the chemistry of of the new more progressive council members with with the rest of the council, but they're they're, they're certainly not shy. Uh, yeah, they they're doing as things that as advertised, and Proposition B. I mean, you're right; it does seem like a million years ago that we had these elections. But Proposition B, what happened with that? As as close as it came to being passed, really, really is still kind of blows my mind. It's Me remarkable, uh, and this was something that was that was that was crafted, that was pushed. Uh, by young progressives, you know, young progressives who are, you know, summer of 2020 were out in the streets protesting, you know, with the whole George Floyd, uh, aftermath of George Floyd. But then they, they, you know, they sat down and, 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 and did their research and crafted this policy and almost put off what would have been one of the biggest policy upsets when it comes to referendum we've ever had in San Antonio, mm-hmm. or propositions that we've ever had. And uh, I mean, that's, I think, you know, we, we, we hear a lot about and about the sort of maybe tension within the Democratic Party. Obviously, we're seeing on the net, on the federal level, there's a, the Build Back Better bill, which is at least temporarily being held uh, back by um, you know, moderate Democrat, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Um, he's, he's also mm-hmm. kind of blocked the the. Uh, 
any voting chance for voting legislation uh, yeah. because uh, his of his allegiance to the filibuster. And I mean, this is these issues are playing out locally. I mean, we see when we see Jalen McKee Rodriguez and maybe have a disagreement with Manny Polias about certain issues, whether it's, you know, police funding or whatever the issue might be. And I mean, on the local level, we're seeing some of these issues kind of similar issues playing out. And I think that that's going to be something to watch. Um, as we go forward, and it's going to it's going to affect the 2022 election. It's going to affect the 2024 presidential election. Um, uh, you know, and I think that's that's it's a it's a dynamic that we're that we're seeing, you know, play out in the city council as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I hate to be <laughs> go <that>. for it, Greg. <laughs> right. But and I, I do find uh, <laughs> Councilwoman Castillo and Councilman um, McGee. Mickey Rodriguez, like really interest, they're really interesting to me. And like they, I mean, they really are, they seem very principled in, in how they go about their work on council. Uh, and we'll see, you know, we'll see if they're able to maintain that. But I mean, I also know that, you know, San Antonio is a city manager True. run city. This is not a strong mayor, strong city council city. And they're just, you know, there are big institutional uh, yeah. barriers to what they want to do. I mean, the the city, the city manager's office on down through the city bureaucracy has kind of a blunting effect on, on city, you know, really energetic city council members who want to shake things up. Um, they just, they tend to right. slow them down a little bit over time. Uh, you know, they they will get them interested in, you know, infrastructure projects uh, or, you know, social service projects in their districts. They'll get them involved in those conversations. And suddenly over time, they they become, you know, their stance becomes a lot friendlier to the city manager, to the mayor, uh, because that friendliness, res- you know, it, it yields results. Uh, it's easier to get projects done in their districts, and that helps them get, get reelected. And this doesn't even include uh, the lobbyist community, <laughs> those who are constantly talking to them about discretionary contracts, spending that would be beneficial to a client, that kind of thing. And these, if, uh, lobbyists are very friendly. Mm-hmm. They offer a lot of advice. They they make a lot of campaign contributions. They, too, have a blunting effect on on new council members and their urge to like shake things up. So we'll see. I mean, I think the, the jury, the jury needless to say is still out on this. Yeah. Before we wrap things up, I I do want to mention, um, the, uh, confirmation this year, uh, from, uh, County judge Nelson Wolf, that he would not seek another term uh, after 20 years as County judge. He's someone who was a state representative and a state Senator in the seventies, a council member in the eighties, mayor in the nineties, and is, and has really over the last, uh, 20 years expanded the role of the county judge and of county government in this community. So um, the the race to succeed him is going to be something to watch. Um, we it's, it's going to be a lot to get into. And, and I think in our early episodes of 2022, it's something we're going to talk about a lot. But um, it's it's been said many times that the, that whoever gets that that position is going to have big shoes to fill. And um it's gonna it's it's a, it's gonna be a fascinating story. So I want to thank everyone for for listening to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Hope everyone has uh, wonderful holidays, and we're gonna be back with you in the new year. Take care. <laughs>